0: Well, as was already mentioned, today we are beginning a new series as we have concluded our walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we are jumping back into the Old Testament and considering the book of Daniel. And Daniel is a beautiful and challenging book, one that, again, we've looked at From the reverse side, we've looked at from the book of Revelation. When we did a study of Revelation years ago, um, we used Daniel as our source in many ways. Uh, The book of Revelation is tied very uh, deeply to the book of Daniel, and Daniel points forward to uh, the book of Revelation. So we'll we'll be now looking at Revelation sort of that way. Uh, So it'll be a good study for us. But as we come to the book of Daniel, and we've already read Daniel chapter 1, so we at least have the context we're considering today as we look at this first chapter, it's important for us to know where we are historically. Uh, You heard in the the very, we get the introduction, the very uh, beginning in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we are at that place where the southern kingdom now of Judah is about to be taken off into exile. You'll remember that years ago, 200 years prior to this or thereabouts, the kingdom of Israel split. After Solomon, the kingdom split into two. or No, uh, much more than 200, excuse me, about 400 years earlier. The kingdom of Israel had split into two a northern kingdom with ten tribes, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And that cohesive uh, family of Israel, the sons of Jacob, uh, were torn asunder and were pitted against each other. And each of them, if you remember the story, began slowly to deteriorate One king being worse than the next, kind of being worse than the, you know, worse and worse than the last and worse than the last and so forth. This was especially true of the northern kingdoms where just there was a a descending series of integrity uh, in the kings. And in 722, the the kingdom of Assyria came and overtook the northern kingdom of Israel and did the same thing to them. Besieged them, scattered them all over their empire, They kind of controlled the Middle East and and they took the Israelites out, scattered them abroad, repopulated the land with their own people or other conquered people. And that was the end of the Northern Kingdom, leaving only the Southern Kingdom of Judah, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And because they did have some kings that honored the Lord and brought national repentance, called people back to obey God and to trust in him, the Lord preserved them. They they were sustained a little bit longer, but eventually rebellious king after rebellious king finally brought them to this place that we find them now. And there around 586, the southern kingdom of Judah was besieged and taken off into exile as well. Now that the Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians, the Assyrians were no more, and the reigning power in the Middle East was uh, was the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar being their king. Now Nebuchadnezzar came and uh, laid siege to the southern kingdom of Judah and did the same thing to them, carried many of, as we hear with Daniel, first wave was carrying away any able people to come and to serve in Babylon, and then later, They just destroyed uh, Jerusalem altogether and scattered the people as a whole. And you heard in the psalm that we just sang, in Psalm 137, you hear the cry of the psalmist weeping and lamenting this exilic reality. Like, you know, they, they take up your harp, sing us a song. Sing us a song here, Tell, sing those old hymns you used to sing back in the land, if you will, that the people of Babylon are, are mocking them. And how are they to do it? The psalmist kind of groans and he says, how can we even sing those songs? We're in a foreign land, like everything has been cut out from underneath us. Everything that was our hope, everything that was our identity has been cut out from under us. We've literally lost everything. They've been, dry. I mean, the one thing, if you're living in Judah, the one thing you know is a solid rock, untouchable, is the temple. That's the house of God. That's We, we anchor ourselves culturally and socially around that. That is the very presence of God. That is Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelling with us in our midst and now Nebuchadnezzar has come in and raided that and taken articles from there back to Babylon and put them in the temples of his gods like the 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 temple was just laid open Emmanuel himself has been plundered <laughs> the you know like our worlds were rocked, you know, like back at 9-11, you know, and I suppose for an earlier generation, Pearl Harbor, you know, when like America was attacked and there was a vulnerability that we just hadn't faced or felt, you know, you live in Europe, you know, okay, wars happen. It's like, you know, the, your history is a history of wars, but ours wasn't. You know, we're, we're pretty much secluded over here across an ocean and then, and then across Pearl Harbor for one generation and for us you know 911 and and the the unsettling nature of that it, you'll remember that day many of you when when it was like what you just felt like I remember all morning watching the the you know the the, the two towers of course finally you know get away what's going on and you go watch the news and what's happening here and and then all of a sudden you hear, wait, there was another one down at the Pentagon. And then you, wait, another one went down in a field in Pennsylvania. And, you're, and I remember just thinking, like, oh my gosh, how, m- how many more of these are? Like, what's going on? And then the towers fall and everything. I just remember it just felt like nothing was stable. Everything was moving underneath you. You couldn't make sense of things. And that, that, I can't, it's not even on the same spectrum compared to what the Judeans, if you will. Are feeling as their temple is plundered, their city eventually destroyed, their people carried out, and you hear the cry of the psalmist like, how can we even sing? How do you sing the songs of Jerusalem when you're living in a foreign land? When our families have been torn apart, our city is destroyed. The very land God promised to our ancestors, to our fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That land he promised was given to us. And now that land is being run by Babylonians, the temple, and everything else. So you can feel, I i can't put into words, I don't think, the distress, the horror of the exile that Israel, that, Jerusalem, that uh, uh, Judah would feel. It's it's just too hard to do. But this is where we find ourselves. Israel is heading, I'm saying Israel, Judah, the Jews are heading off into exile now. And we have Daniel, who gives us, if you will, a memoir of his journey. And it's an amazing journey. And it's one, by the way, in which we get a spoiler alert. <laughs> I have to give you a, I should have given you a spoiler alert because at the very one it says, and Daniel did this until the reign of Cyrus. So Daniel's going to go through some harried adventures in here, but he's already told us, but he does this until the reign of Cyrus. And so as we even go into these things, you will know that uh, Daniel does persevere by the grace of God all the way through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar until the reign of Cyrus the Persian king who comes and defeats the Babylonians, even as the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians, Cyrus will be that guy, and Daniel will reign, all will uh, serve the kingdom of Babylon all the way until the day of the Persians. So we know that Daniel's life is going to be a long one because he's a teenager here. I mean, he's literally mid-teenager. People say anywhere thirteen to sixteen is probably what we're dealing with. Which, by the way, I don't know. That's not how I think of Daniel. Okay, I think of Daniel as, you know, just a mature guy. But this is one of my high school students. You know, this is this is this is a high schooler. And yet amazing maturity and wisdom and faith above all else in his God is what we see here in Daniel. Now, I want us to think about the exile here in Daniel chapter 1 under just three categories. First, the first thing I want us to think about exile is the sovereignty of this exile, right? The sovereign control of God over this exile. Now, as we do this and as we really study this entire book, it's very important for us not just to sit here and kind of try to zoom back down the corridors of history and try to think what Israel was going through or what Judah was going through. That's worth doing and we have to do it because that's what this is about. But it's very important that we find ourselves connected with this story by understanding our own exile. Right? In the New Testament, this language of exile gets picked up for us. Like for example, in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter one, he, he's speaking to the exiles, literally people of his own day who are scattered from their home for the sake of the gospel. And he calls us sojourners and travelers, right? We're aliens in this world. Paul has told us in Romans chapter 12, and we thought about this all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. This is not your home. You are not Babylonians, yet you are living in Babylon. That image, this story of the exile, is the dominant story now, the narrative of our lives. We are those who are the people of God living in exile who have lost everything. And to understand that exile, you need to go back to the book of Genesis, right? The whole story of the Bible begins with our forefathers, mothers, right? Adam and Eve in the garden and then being exiled, being sent out of the garden, separated from their home, separated from the only world they knew, with everything cut out from underneath them. Their very relationship with God seems severed. Literally, there's an angel with a flaming sword standing between them and access back into that place. Life itself, the tree of life, was in there behind that sword. They lost everything, and here we were then, cast out into a world. Ruled over by a much worse Nebuchadnezzar, the ultimate Nebuchadnezzar, right? The evil one himself, as the scriptures call him, the ruler of the power of the air, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age, the God of this age. We as human beings are living out this story. That is to say, the story of Judah going out into exile is a little microcosm of our big story. And therefore, we can relate this. So this, the study of Daniel will not merely be a history lesson. It will be a theology lesson. It will be a, a study on godly wisdom for Christians living in exile, which each of you are. We are living in Babylon, not because America is Babylon, but because this age is Babylon. And yes, America is Babylon and Germany is Babylon and the countries of Africa are Babylon and the countries of, you know, uh, the Middle East are, everything's Babylon. This age is Babylon. And we live here. And we have to think, how can we sing songs to God here when we have to deal with the horrors of our age? It's not the same as Nebuchadnezzar, but we have to deal with the horrors of exilic life. We have to deal with the horrors of funerals. And bad diagnoses and very difficult decisions, as Jerry's mentioning. How do we handle aging and, and our future and where we live and getting a job and trying to be faithful in the midst of a world that doesn't honor our God? I hope, my prayer is that as we study the book of Daniel, that we come out with some great wisdom on this. As we see what Daniel did in this little microcosmic exile, which for him was just amazingly huge. But for us, it's a microcosm of the larger exile that we need to go through. Now, the first thing we see right here at the beginning is the fact that God is sovereign over it. We hear in the very beginning, Daniel gives us sort of the historical facts on the thing. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, that's if you were reading the newspaper... The next day, that's what you would have read, and that's fair. That's the, that's the events on the ground. But Daniel gives us more than that. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand uh, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried back home to Shinar and put them in the temples of his God. This is not just a story of bad foreign policy bad governmental decisions, right? You know, the the cabinet there of, of Jehoiakim getting it wrong and blowing it. There is that. But Daniel sees through that to something much deeper. God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He turned him over, if you will. God is sovereign over this. And Daniel at least for one, recognizes this, which is going to then shade and color his understanding of his own role in Babylon. Like, what do I do? Do I fight? Like, imagine all the decisions Daniel's got to make. Do I do I go down swinging? Just, just fight and let them kill me because no way I'm not serving Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to serve Babylon. No way. Is that a decision you make? Do you just submit? Do you just say, well, this is the way the world works, the captive powers you know, rule, and you just have to submit and do what you have to do? I mean, a whole complicated network of decisions have to be made by Daniel, and what's going to color them all is the fact that God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That for Daniel, this is the will of God. As painful as it is, as hard as it is, as unsettling as it is, this is the will of God, and therefore, as I go, I go by the will of God, and therefore, will serve God where He calls me. And this is important again for us to understand in our own exile. Sure, Satan is the ruler of this age, right? Of this Babylonian age, blinding in the nations and throughout the entire Old Testament. And as it was, and remember, we've talked about this before. We can do it more in Sunday school if you want. When, when Jesus is being tempted, and in the third temptation, Satan says to him, I will give you the kingdoms of this world if you will bow before me. And people say, well, okay, that's, a ridiculous, that's no temptation at all because Satan didn't have the kingdoms. Yes, he did. Just like Nebuchadnezzar had the land. It doesn't mean Nebuchadnezzar is more powerful than God. It means that God gave the kingdom of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. And God had given, if you will, the kingdoms of this age to Satan. When Adam chose to ally himself with Satan, to believe Satan's lies over God's promises, God said, okay. And as we read in Romans chapter 1, he turned us over to the desires of our heart. I will give you as you want. Here you go. You will serve that master then. And the story of the Old Testament is all of us as humanity serving that master until finally we have the return of the king who comes and doesn't settle for the bargain, the deal to to receive these kingdoms back, but says, no, I will achieve them myself. I will do what is necessary to undermine Nebuchadnezzar and to reclaim the land and to take the kingdoms back, which he has done. But the exile The the, the sending out, the judgment of it is done by the very will of God. The temple is plundered by the will of God. The land is taken by the will of God and the people of Judah dragged out in chains by the will of God for his purposes. And we know his ultimate purpose is to bring them home. What was it after all that led to this? Is it God just being whimsical? God God, just saying, oh, you know what? Let's change things up here. Let's get Nebuchadnezzar in here and shake things up. Of course that's not what it is. You know the story. You know what has brought them to this point. Just like with Adam and Eve. Why does he take his temple, his image bearer, and cast them out of the land and make them Ichabod with the glory departed? Because they chose to worship another. And why is Israel being cast out of the land and the temple now being Ichabod, the glory having departed and the the, the thing turned over to Nebuchadnezzar because they've chosen to worship another again and again and again and again while prophet prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet came and called them to repent and turn. The Lord will judge. The Lord will judge. The Lord will judge. And prophet after prophet were killed and turned away. This is a hard act of discipline by a loving father, a hard act of discipline by a loving father that turns them over like the father of the prodigal son who gives the son what he wants that he might go and squander it knowing full well what's going to become of his beloved son. How difficult a thing to do, but lets his beloved son go and lose himself in this foreign city and end up eating the pods of the pigs. Well, here the Lord has expedited that and turned them over to that kind of judgment with the desire that one day they would return home. That he would bring them back and reconcile them. So the first thing we see here is the sovereignty of it and Daniel knows this. The second thing we see is the challenge right off the bat. Now we know, if you know the book of Daniel Law, you know some of the very severe challenges that are coming but already here we get some hints of them. And the one I want to just think about for a second is the fact that their names get changed. This is this is what happens in exile. Like now you're going to be facing new challenges. In some sense, who are you? All of these men, the four that are mentioned here with Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all have the name of God in their name, El and Yah. Right? God is our judge, servant of God, God is with us, you know, Yahweh. And the first thing the eunuchs do, the first thing the leader of the eunuchs do is changes all their names. Switches them and gives them Babylonian names and the names of the the Babylonian gods. Servant of this God and this God is with you and follower of that God. So already now the challenges are going to be there for them and these challenges are there for you and me as well as we find ourselves out in exile to wrestle with Whose are we and who are we? We just read with our faculty at Chapelfield over the summer. We, we try to read through the curriculum of our school. We're on the process anyway. And so with, uh, with the faculty. And we read uh, C.S. Lewis's Silver Chair uh, this summer together. Went lighter. Dante's next, so we're going, <laughs> we're going uh, harder after that. But, but uh, Silver Chair. And in the Silver Chair, Aslan sends Jill and Eustace down to find the prince, Prince Rillian. And in order to go, he tells them, when you go down in there, in some sense it's an exile from Aslan's country, He, he sends them down into Narnia, and then down into Narnia, and then down under Narnia, into the underworld. And he says, when you go down there, the air gets a lot thicker. And you're going to tend to forget Things. You're going to forget what I'm telling you now. And you need to repeat the things I'm telling you so that you remember them. He gives them certain instructions and tells them kind of when you sit down and when you stand up and when you walk along the way, make sure you repeat these things because the air gets thick and gaseous down there. And you're going to tend to forget. And they do forget. And they get themselves in a little world of trouble until finally their, their, their guide, a guy named Puddle A marsh wiggle sticks his foot in a fire and snaps himself back to and begins to get his mind clear and and remember Aslan and remember Aslan's words and so forth. But that's the reality in exile. You start to forget the simple things, you get distracted, you get diluted, the air gets toxic and gaseous, and next thing you know, you forget who you are and what you're doing and what the purpose of your time here is. You start to think like Corinthians, as we just thought back in the book of First Corinthians, you tend to think like Romans, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You start to think like the world, you start getting in line everybody's walking this way i guess i'll do it you've seen the the, the 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 study once where it's like to see if people just do things they don't know why they're doing it but because everyone's doing it and they have a a, a person walk into a waiting room and everybody's an actor in here and they get into the waiting room and they're all sitting there and a little buzzer goes off bam. and when the buzzer goes off everybody in the room stands for like 3 seconds and then sits and the woman or a guy, I can't remember, walks in, and he's sitting there, and there's a bam, and everybody stands. She's reading a magazine, everybody stands, and, and then they all sit, okay, and flipping the pages, and about two minutes later, bam, the buzzer goes, everybody, everybody stands, three seconds, they all sit, and she, she's, you know, <laughs> and they keep doing this. And after about three times, bam, she puts down her book, stands up. They all sit, she sits, gets her magazine back, and just gets in the rhythm of the standing and sitting. It's absolutely meaningless. There's nothing going on. But it's like, I guess I'm probably supposed to be doing this because the buzzer goes off, everybody stands. I guess that's what you're supposed to do here. It's really incredible. And yet I could probably see myself doing it. I'd probably wonder why, yeah, I guess I should be standing. There's something I don't know. And life in exile looks like that. Everybody starts pursuing the American dream. It's like, i that's what we're supposed to do. We're all supposed to work hard so we can have a nice retirement. That's what you do. You're an American. I don't know. What else would you do? We have to be careful of that. Who are you? Whose are you? What is your name? Do you remember? Do you remember that you were created as the image bearer of God? That you were created in the garden to reflect the glory of God. Do you remember the first question in the catechism? What is the chief end of man? That man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Like, is that, do you remember the words of Jesus where He says, don't worry about money. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. I'm telling you this because for us, the air is thick down here. It's gaseous. You will tend to forget who you are and whose you are in this land of Babylon. The Babylonian ways, the standing and the sitting at the buzzer are very tempting to follow. And we don't know why. It's just what you do when you live in Babylon. So Daniel and the boys already are faced with this challenge in the changing of their name. And we'll have to wait to see how that affects Daniel, but we get a pretty good clue because lastly and thirdly, the wisdom of God's people in exile, and we see this with Daniel right off the bat. We get a good sign not only in his reporting that hey, this was by the will of God, God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of of Nebuchadnezzar. But in this immediate story we get, where Daniel refuses the delicacies of Babylon, right the, Daniel is selected. And it's interesting, this is a memoir by Daniel because we're told that the king only chose the young men who, who had no blemishes, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possess, possessing knowledge, quick to understanding. This is coming from Daniel, you know, who said, telling us the men, the kind of men they chose, you know. And, uh, you know, it's a fair report, I guess. But as Daniel, as Daniel is one of these men He's chosen by the king, among many others, I imagine, from all over different kingdoms. Those who look most able to serve, okay, hey, we're going to give them three years of training, change their names, break them down, make them Babylonians. Teach them the language, teach them the culture, enculturate them, right? Ground them in Babylonian culture so that they are able to serve. So Daniel's chosen for this. And as such, these are not slaves. These are servants of the king and they are given to eat at the king's table, off the king's table, the food, the kind of food the king would eat, right? Delicious foods and good wines. He wants his men robust, a little plump, apparently, you know, <laughs> it's good. See, we Americans, oh, really? Wow, it's a good thing to be a little overweight. That's good. That's good. We would take that. But Daniel, right off the bat, says, no. No. He gets in good by the grace of God with the chief here, the chief of the eunuchs, and he comes, he says, I do not want to eat the delicacies of the king. Now, people have wondered why. Some have said, well, he can't eat because it's not kosher. Well, nothing's going to be kosher in Babylon. That can't be why. He goes on to eat the vegetables, okay? And wine, there's not a problem necessarily with wine not being kosher. It's not that it's not kosher or the food laws. That's out now. You're in Babylon. There are certain things that are going to fade away. The second thought might be, well, it, was, it had been sacrificed to idols. And that's not necessarily the case because everything was sacrificed. Everything there is done in the name of their God. I don't think either of those are why Daniel won't eat. I think the reason Daniel won't eat is Daniel wants to guard his own heart and keep it pure. Daniel will later drink wine. But not right now. Daniel wants to guard his heart from eating the delicacies of the king, and next thing you know, falling in love with this culture, becoming part of it, giving his heart over to it. Instead, he keeps more of a Spartanish kind of life, right? A monastic life. No, no, no. Give me vegetables and water. The, the head of the eunuchs, we understand his position. He's like, Daniel, look, I love you. I know we get along great. I'm happy to, to make things work for you, but it'll cost me my head. Right, you you come into the king looking famished, and the king says, "What's wrong with these guys?" And they go, I don't know I gave him vegetables and water. You did to my servants. You know that's not going to end well for the head of the eunuchs. So he's like, "I can't do that." And Daniel asks for a test. Let's have this short little test and see. After ten days, do we look weak? Do we not have the energy? And after such, they look more robust and they're ready to go. The Lord answers Daniel's faithfulness with this gift of robust health. And so it is able to continue to such a degree that when Daniel finally reaches the point of service after three years, he's ready to go and Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed with him. And he, the, the wisdom they get from these guys is 10 times greater than anything they're getting from anyone else. And boom, they're brought into the service of the king. But here, right at this earliest stage, we're faced with a very interesting question. A little, a little, this is what we're going to learn about exilic life in Daniel. You're going to see these little windows and we can ask, what does that look like in my time? We're not going to be faced with the exact same situation Daniel's faced with. But nonetheless, we can ask the question, what does this mean for me in my life of exile? Where are the delicacies of Babylon placed before me that maybe in would have been sinful for Daniel to eat? I don't think so. I don't think so. This is not a matter of sin. This is a matter of wisdom. That passage we read in, in Romans chapter 14 about the food, and we know that, we've thought about that in 1 Corinthians. But what is Paul telling us? Each man guard his or her own soul. Each of you and I will have to give an account before the Lord. Therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink, make wise decisions. Can I do this to the glory of God? Because that is my aim. My aim is not getting along in Babylon. My aim is serving the king of kings. And if I think I can do that, eating this food, eat it. If I don't think I can do this, eating the food, don't eat it. And Daniel, in the wisdom that clearly from this text, his wisdom is mentioned multiple times in this text, the wisdom that he had been gifted with, with that wisdom, he said, I ought not. It will be a dangerous thing for me to partake in the delicacies of Babylon. Daniel, I assume, thought that in so doing, he, like Jill and Eustace, will forget. They'll forget the songs of Jerusalem. They'll forget Jerusalem altogether. I got it pretty darn good. I'm sitting here eating at the king's table, drinking excellent wine, having good food, great entertainment, a beautiful place at the palace of the king, the the great wonder of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon, a beautiful setting, great food, good drink. You know what? A new name, Belshazzar. (laughs) And like Puddleglum, who sticks his foot in the fire so that it can snap him to the the burning marsh wiggle, as Lewis says, was enough to snap anyone back into place. The smell of burning marshwiggle. Well, so also here, Daniel sticks his foot in the fire by saying, I'm going to abstain from the food. And nonetheless, my God will bless me. You'll see. He'll bless the faithfulness. What does that mean for you? What, what do you and I need to abstain from? Where do we need to stick our foot in the fire? Where do we need to snap ourselves back to? Where are the delicacies of Babylon being presented to you and to me that we need to be aware of and that maybe heretofore we have not thought about? We've just delighted because, hey, it's right there. Who's going to turn down a good steak? Who's going to turn down a great glass of wine? It's right there for you. You're a moron if you refuse it. Exilic life calls for wisdom. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the book of Daniel. And Daniel's going to have the places where he's going to draw the line. Notice he doesn't draw the line on the name. He doesn't say, you know, kill me, but I will forever be Daniel. God is my judge. You know, that's what the name means. God has judged. He doesn't, he doesn't draw the line there. And maybe, maybe we might read this story and say, that story would have made a lot more sense if Daniel would have been like, no, because we're going to see other places where Daniel's going to draw the line. You tell me I can't pray. I will pray. It doesn't matter if you throw me to the lions. With the food, I'm not going to partake of the food. Not a hard line. I'm just asking for it, guarding his own soul. The name he accepts, the name Belshazzar. Exilic life, there's no rule book. We've said before in here, it takes improvisation. By prayer and reliance on the Spirit and by being so saturated with the Word of God, as Aslan told Jill and Eustace, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. As Moses told the Israelites, when you go into the new land, the air will be thick in there. Say it when you sit down. Say it when you stand up. Write it on your foreheads. Put it on the posts of your door. And in eating and eating and eating the Word of God, by studying the Word of God and studying it and studying it and getting it into you, then when you need to improvise, you will improvise with wisdom. And Daniel sees the situation and by God's grace, he has the eyes to say, I don't want that. May God give us the wisdom to be at peace within our exile. We will consider in weeks to come that passage in Jeremiah 29 to the exiles. When you go off into exile, build houses, Plant gardens, get married and give your children in marriage, seek the good of the city in which you live, pray for its peace. That is to say, be at peace in the exile God has sent you into. Yeah, we're going back home one day, but right now he's called us to be in exile. We need to be at peace here. But what we need here is wisdom. Wisdom and the desire for faithfulness, which we see in Daniel. And may God give it to us and help us grow in it as we move through this book. Let us pray together. Father, by your sovereign purposes, you have cast us from the garden, and we wander around in this life of exile as prodigals who find ourselves eating out of the troughs of the pigs pursuing our idols, and we pray, Lord, that you would protect us, that you would guide us with wisdom by the power of your Spirit. We thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already begun the return from exile for us all, for he has gone into the grave and come forth victorious. And now is there to lead us home into victory. So in this time of excitement, when we see already the train heading home to Jerusalem, Father, now keep us faithful, we pray, and give us wisdom for how we manage life in this exilic state. Give us eyes to see the tempting delicacies of Babylon that might lure our hearts away from you and make them noxious to us, we pray. And help us with all our hearts to seek to glorify you and to find our enjoyment in you and in you alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.